Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to Episode 5, Big Bugs and Gassy Guests. This week we're discussing Season 1, Episode 4 of Doctor Who, Aliens of London, and Season 1, Episode 4 of Buffy, Teacher's Pet. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes first before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right, so we're starting with Buffy again this week, which means I get to go first, as usual. And um, we won't always do this, but uh, both last week and this, I think kind of starting with the sort of, uh, you know, villain or monster or sort of theme of the week is sort of a good way to go. Um, these are early days. We don't have a ton of, you know, character drama quite yet. So right now we're still getting to know everybody. But but we're so, getting there. I mean, there's there's some good we are, character we're stuff. We're starting to get a little bit juicier. Uh, but um, but without doubt, definitely the the thing to talk about in Teacher's Pet is um, every all of the. Uh, complexities related to the she mantis um (laughs) so uh i mean there's a lot going on there um so i mean i know you have something you want to bring up so just as kind of by way of introduction you know some of the things that i was noticing as i was watching it was um you know uh the the kind of large and aggressive female you know the kind of the inversion of what you expect of of you know uh it it is that kind of opposite of the damsel in distress that here we have a predatory female monster um she's you know a femme fatale you know or a man eater upper as they say um they call her the (laughs) the virgin thief um yeah and they made kind of a allusion to uh other, you know, mythological characters that maybe are related to the Shemantis, or perhaps one is derived from the other with things like the Siren. So, mm-hmm. you know, sort of old tales of, of fem- sort of seductive female characters luring yeah. people away to disastrous fates. Um, and so, uh, so it is kind of drawing on that tradition. Um, but uh, you know, also kind of playing on all of this insect imagery. So hmm. taking the idea of, um, you know, being attracted to people because of their smell and everything, and then taking that into the idea of pheromones and that this is what she uses to attract her prey. Um, and of course, it's her young, naive male prey who are, you know, completely physically... Um, attracted to her and don't necessarily realize uh, what they're getting themselves in for. And it was kind of interesting to see them sort of this become a horrible sort of wish fulfillment where they want her to be, uh, they want to be singled out by this hot female teacher. (laughs) They want to be the one invited back to her place. And then as soon as as soon as they do, you realize they're completely out of their depth. I mean, even before it gets dangerous, they're completely out of their depth. You know that Xander's totally thrown off by, you know, how forward she is, and she's giving him drinks, and she's wearing revealing clothing and everything. 
and I mean, he's kind of excited by it, but he's also scared of it. And then yeah. that, of course, only becomes exacerbated when we realize she's a giant praying mantis. Um, so, yeah, playing on that idea of chemical attractions and all these different things. So um, kind of an interesting kind of an interesting idea for a monster. So um, did you want to talk a little, explain to me a little bit um, what you were telling me earlier about this idea of the monstrous feminine? Because I think that has a lot to do with what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so there were a couple of things. First of all, femme fatale is, is a, obviously the great term for that because she is sort of vaguely foreign she's attractive mm-hmm. and and you know you can't quite place the accent it her name is miss french so you know right. maybe it's a right. french accent kind but, of french but, but you're not yeah. quite sure there and and yeah so there there was a lot there the mythological origin but yeah the um monstrous feminine is is a concept that i guess was popularized or or possibly even created by barbara creed um in the early 1990s, she she wrote a book with that title, um, basically on the portrayal of women as monsters in movies, and and sort of the idea being, um, and and I don't pretend to be an expert on this idea. I'm not um, a, a feminist scholar per se. Um, don't don't really have that as a background. So this is just based on what reviews I've read. I've not actually read the book itself, but my understanding is that that basically the idea is that. Um, particularly in in movies, uh, you get kind of two portrayals of women, the damsel in distress, like you said, or kind of the opposite in a way of the the female monster, Um, although Creed didn't like that term, the female monster. So she came up with monstrous feminine because it it really is um, in her reading or in her viewing of of these various movies like Alien or Carrie or or other horror films. the monsters are the feminine part of um, the thing, either either the motherhood. Um, a lot of times you get these, um, you know, aliens who they're, they're looking to propagate themselves. And they, of course, do that by preying on the man and stealing their manhood in a way, either through castration or the taking of semen or whatever it might be. Um, both of which you kind of get in this episode mm-hmm. with with regard yeah. to um, at least a metaphorical uh, decapitation. Well, literal decapitation, metaphorical castration, yeah. I guess, she, would be. She mates with you and then she bites your head off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, um, and, and yeah, and the purpose of this being so that she can propagate her evil feminine, you know, insectness, mm-hmm. whatever that is. So, um, so the idea... The, the distinction being this this doesn't necessarily apply to it's not just a monster who happens to be female it's right. that the femininity is what's monstrous exactly and so yeah and and there and and creed goes goes into a number of different ways and how that applies but I think I think yeah the, the two there the the motherness and and the sort of um, the attraction, you know, you know, the attractive older woman, right? She's using her wiles, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of put it that way, in, in, into luring these um, innocent men and and I or virginal men. I don't know if we should call them innocent per se, but um, or I, even or even men really, they're still boys, <laughs> well, teenage boys. Yeah. And and I think that's a great point because I think there there's a total just, juxtaposition here of 
her obviously vast experience um, in, in, in doing this sort of seduction. Um, but her, you know, her demeanor, of course, is as this sort of innocent, you know, she's she needs help making, you know, plaster eggs for the science fair, you know, yeah. is, and then, oh, do I look OK? You know, should I go change? You like, you yeah. know, all of these sort of very somewhat kitschy you know yeah. intentionally so yeah um you know to to attract these guys but then you have both of these guys blaine and xander who want to seem uh more experienced than either of them truly are yeah. um mm-hmm. xander we we kind of get the awkwardness at the beginning um when he's asked by blaine you know oh you know who have you been with and he's like oh well you know what do you mean today or this week or, you know, whatever, when, you know, clearly yeah. either way you answer, no matter what time period you give, the answer is zero. Yeah. Um, and then his, his posturing um, with Buffy and Willow immediately after that to try to beef up his manhood. Yeah. Um, and Willow is pretty and, into it. I have to say. Well, yes, yes. We can talk about Willow. Um, <laughs> she's, she's uh yes, she's, she's not exactly subtle, although despite her lack of subtlety, um, Xander doesn't pick up on it. Um, But the, uh, but the other thing is of course, you know, in this whole idea is that Blaine is just as, um, you know, virginal as, as Xander is. Right. And that's that, and that's the fake out. I mean, we know, we can anticipate this because we've spent time with Xander. mm -hmm. So we know what kind of a guy he is. Um, so, but, we don't. I we haven't met Blaine before this episode, right? We no. know nothing about him, so he's kind of you know, you know, good looking guy, and he has he gave me a kind of a Luke Perryish vibe, like he seems yeah. like a kind of. Well, and he you know he just drops the fact that you know he's a pretty good jock, you know. Yeah, he's got the, so the sports so, going for him. Yeah, a more stereotypical sort of you know stud with the ladies, popular kind of. You know, right. and then it turns out, no, no, he's just as inexperienced as Xander. Um, right, he's right. just a little better at hiding it. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah. And you again, can't, you I can't mean, make assumptions about people, I guess, is the the takeaway well, from that. Well, you can't. And also, I mean, right, right. No, I think that's definitely it. But, but then, you know, again, that juxtaposition between them, want, you know, they want to be more experienced. They they want to f- pretend to be more experienced so they can get the experience. Right. Miss Miss French slash big insect, um, you know, is trying to make herself look attractive and, and inexperienced yeah. in a way to or not maybe inexperienced isn't quite the word, but you you know, she she's trying to um not let on uh you know, about what she really right. is and, and until and, and they her get true to the nature. house. So, so of, there's, yeah, the innocence is the bait to get them to the house, and then as soon as they get to the house, she opens in the little black dress and <laughs> and breaks out the martinis. So mm-hmm. the the tactic changes into okay, I've got them where I want them. Now I'm going to intimidate them. Yeah, well, and and there's a there's a bit of so her deception also leads to Xander 
uh, Xander's self-deception because there's that whole conversation he has with Buffy about, you know, oh, you know, someone finally wants me right. and, you know, <laughs> she, you know, I'm the only one for her kind of speak, it, yeah. at, which we find out later as he's saying this, she has another guy trapped in her basement, yeah. you know, getting ready to feed on him. So, you know, it's, 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 it's varying levels of duplicity here and, and it's, not good for anyone really involved no No. um and i think kind of like not to kind of i don't want to turn this into like an after school special or anything but it is that kind of (laughs) that kind of you know it is a little bit of a cautionary tale about about feeling like you know for teenagers who you said you want to see more experience that you get the experience and it becomes it's all about you know what others think of you and everything and and Mm -hmm. pushing yourself to do things which are frankly dangerous and maybe not dangerous because praying mantises are waiting for you but like the idea (laughs) of like xander gets a little bit of a wake-up call because of his self-deception into thinking that being with this older woman who is his teacher is a good idea like that is just not a good idea and it totally backfires on him yeah yeah no i i agree um i think too that there's there's a sort of um well i mean so i mean clearly it's predatory on her part yeah literally and metaphorically um but i think too that that we're getting an opportunity here to sort of see something that's a different kind of predatory metaphor than the vampirism that we've seen yeah um that we saw in the first episode or well, the first two episodes that that two parter, you know, opening. Um, the well, I, I, there, there's a number of different layers here, and I guess I <laughs> trying to trying to unpack them. Um, Which one? You know, I mean, it, there, there's definitely there's definitely the older person preying on the younger person aspect to it, um, and and very often it does happen with regard to persons in authority over yeah you know other younger people and and that's true regardless of of gender um yeah you know necessarily i mean it certainly happens um uh, cross gender within gender you know yeah. and and whatever so like it it's not i don't think that that particular aspect of it um has anything to do with it but but there is that sort of naive um you know young teenage male fantasy mm-hmm. of of the older woman you yeah. know <laughs> the attractive older woman who you know can can teach you the ways of the world kind of thing um and there are older women who are perfectly willing to take advantage of that yeah idea it and so well and i say take advantage that obviously has pejorative connotations but you know there some young men are perfectly willing to be taken advantage of sure. as well. So, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't want to paint it in, in, in black and white sort of pictures there, but um, yeah, again, it's, it, you know, so, so you, and, and it becomes more complicated because of that desire, because of Xander and Blaine, who both clearly want something from Miss French and it's not help with their homework. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's not a, they are, in fact, being somewhat predatory, almost in the same way that, looking back on the first two episodes, that Jesse 
is is mm-hmm. being predatory in, in his way, although um, he's at least looking within his own age group. <laughs> right. Um, well, because um, uh, it's not even really about Miss French, because Sanders sitting on her couch. I mean, I guess he's a little inebriated or drugged, so he's not totally in his right mind. But, but he's sitting but on her couch. But not when he walks in. Like he, he, he's sitting he, on her couch talking about Buffy. Yeah. You know? Yes. So, oh, yes. He, you know, he's sitting there and he goes, I love Buffy. And that's really <laughs> what he's... So even for him, it's not like he's this innocent who's had a... a a first love and found his dreams. No, this is a purely, this is a status thing and this is a physical thing. So yeah. it is predatory in his part because this is a means to an end, which is to gain experience and confidence so that he can go after Buffy, who's who he's really interested in. Right. And, and it's, yeah, you're right. It's vaguely defined and it's, it's surrogate almost, you know, it's, it's, he doesn't he can't get Buffy. And in fact, you know, even going back to that conversation with Buffy that he has about, um, you know, right pretty much right before he goes over to Miss French's house, you know, Xander's like, basically, you don't want me, so I'm going to go see her. And he's almost using that again in, in a sort of uh, duplicitous way to try to he wants Buffy to stop him. Yeah. And he wants her yeah. to well, and he wants her to do it specifically in a way that says, "No, Xander, I want you. Don't be with Mrs. Yeah, French. this is yeah. a. And, I'm going. Um, I'm, yeah. it's, it's a. You're watching yeah. me go. Here I go. Like, wait, and, are you, you going to stop me? And <laughs> and that's totally, um, if not predatory, at least manipulative. Right. You know, in in his way. So I mean, this is this yeah, is not predatory. Yeah, and I don't want to use that term too strongly. But oh well, no, I I think I think Xander is being predatory. I just think with. Buffy in that particular moment is more uh, manipulating, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a yeah. victim here almost yeah. in, in that sort of sense. But I think, yeah. I think it's not as clear cut as saying Miss French is the predator here and Xander's the innocent. Sure. I think, I think Xander's totally um, acting in some ways, again, like Jesse did in that first episode, he, he wants something to happen here and, and he wants he wants to be looked at by his peers and by others as being the one who made the conquest yeah. um, of this, you know, attractive teacher or whatever. So, right. Um, right. And all but, the, and all the things that come along with that. Yeah. But again, and, and, and I think the predatory aspect of it too, is he's not really interested in Miss French at all as right. a teacher, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's, it's, it's, because she's attractive and happened to pay attention and invite him over. And now he finds himself in this situation. So I think taking all the, you know, and I don't know again, how this all sort of fits into the monstrous feminine. I, I would say that, that clearly, you know, they're, they're making a monster out of her feminine qualities. But I, I, I think it, because of that aspect that it is, there's, there is sort of duality here and you're setting, um, these multiple duplicities against each other mm-hmm. that, that it's, it goes a little bit deeper than that. It's not just one praying on the other. They're, they're both kind of doing this little dance and it just happens to be that Miss French is better at it for longer, uh, right. for a longer time and, and, and has more experience and Xander is 
obviously just sort of bumbling his way through it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, and it is more, it's not, I mean, and there's some of this with the vampires too, but it's not even, it's, with the vampires, it is more of a, a you know, villain attacking a victim. Whereas here, it's like, she makes suggestions and Xander agrees to them and seeks her mm -hmm. out and goes to her house and you know like we said before like wants this to happen so that he can accomplish certain things for himself so yeah. there is more responsibility there you know yeah for his decisions rather mm -hmm. than you know i think it's a little different when it was like the vampire leading willow off and yeah she's agreeing yeah she's being a little bit naive but she's really just being more of the innocent being led along you yeah. know, she's not as involved in the decision-making process. And, yeah. you know, and he's certainly hoping to gain certain things from this relationship. Yeah. Um, more than just uh, having a crush on her. Yeah, no, absolutely. He's, he's looking for status. He's looking for acceptance of his peers. And he's looking for, um, like you said, he's looking for something from Buffy. Although, you know... It, there's no way that this is going to make Buffy like him more, no. <laughs> you know, and, and, no. and that's, you know, that's kind of the tragedy of Xander's uh, <laughs> actions here is that, you know, everyone who's watching is saying, why, why would Buffy want, you know, why would this help you with, with her? Everything it, you it do to make yourself look better just makes yourself look worse. Like, yeah. you know, even his daydream of being with Buffy turns into mm. him drooling on himself and she has to <laughs> like wake him up and say you know uh what are you doing you're drooling over there and there he yeah. is dreaming of himself being as a rock you god. know a yeah. rock god and a vampire slayer and the hero yeah. um yeah. and it's almost like that's like a perfect uh encapsulation of what he keeps doing which is stop dwelling on wishing you were these things because it only ends up Whereas if he would if he would just be himself and accept himself, then he wouldn't be drooling on himself in the middle of class. You know what I mean? Like, it, it it's the very thing that he's sort of desperately wanting to happen, mm. the wanting for it and the needing it and and all these things are sort of working against him rather than actually helping him achieve what he wants. Yeah, yeah, and so I guess we've sort of transitioned into talking about Xander, which makes perfect sense because this episode is kind of in a way all about him. Xander Xander centric. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's 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 um yeah, that you know, going from cool to drool in, you know, yeah. <laughs> 30, 30 seconds. Um he just yeah, yeah, and then and then it's funny because you get sort of you you get the dream version of him in yeah. <laughs> and, and at the bronze and then when we actually see him at the bronze you know he's trying to like be all cool and give yeah. the nod to like the lead singer and the dude's like what the heck are you doing and and of course his conversation with blaine just you know yeah. is sad yeah um, um yeah but then and... sorry go sorry ahead. no i was just gonna say you know also in the bronze there then you get the introduction of angel into the scene and mm -hmm. and you you see xander's jealousy and and clearly that's him you know again dreaming wishing 
Yeah. In sort of a strange way that he was Angel, you know, he's a very attractive man. How come that never came up? <laughs> you know, it's it's you know, uh, clearly a very jealous um statement there and and just trying to come to grips with the fact that Buffy totally snubs him yeah. <laughs> you know and goes over and talks to angel who's yeah. well, mysterious it's, it's and... right after he's gone over and kind of is trying to pose with the girls so willow is immediately on board mm-hmm. she's willing to you know pretending to be in a relationship with xander is about as close as she's gonna come at this point to actually yeah. being in a relationship with xander so she's willing to sort of you know yeah. act like that's true whereas yeah. As soon as that happens, Angel walks in and Buffy's totally distracted. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then, well, I did want to say one more thing quick about Xander because I feel like I'm ready to start talking about Angel now. But um, <laughs> in so not not a great episode for Xander. Feeling a little sorry for him, he gets kicked around a little bit. But I will say one thing um, in his favor. This was, uh, you know, for all his inadequacy and the goofiness, um, he was calmer under pressure than Blaine was. Um, You know, he was able to sort of, you know, keep something of a clear head. He didn't totally freak out. He was willing to sort of fight back and even sort of put himself forward and put himself in danger if it meant a chance of getting them out of there. So, um, you know, whether that's just him and his normal reaction or whether that's some of the influence of having been in a few dangerous situations with Buffy already, um, you know, I thought uh, for all of the poor decision-making, I was actually pleased with how he sort of handled himself once he realized the predicament he was in. Well, and and that's an interesting point and not something that I, I picked up on necessarily because I think if you um, think about where we've seen Xander acting before. um, So again, going back to the first couple episodes, you know, he, he, follows Buffy down into the crypt and, and down into the, um, the sewers and stuff. And, but there it's because Jesse is his friend and he's trying to save Jesse. Yeah. Um, you know, similarly in the last episode in which, where we've got, um, you've got Xander going, you know, trying to help out and he's pretty much ineffectual, Yeah. <laughs> you know, like he just doesn't, I mean, he wants to help out, but again, it's his friends who are involved, right? It's what yeah. it's once Buffy gets sick, uh-huh. then he's, he's ready to act. He's, you know, and he even says, I just, I want you to not be dying basically yeah. anymore. Um, in this case, I mean, obviously he's clearly in danger and in, in the cage and whatever, but he steps out. Right. Who to help. He's helping Blaine, who's yeah. clearly not his friend. So yeah. I do think I think you're right. I think that this is a, a right. It's not even a like... small shining moment for him because it it shows that he's he, it's not just him helping the people who are his friends or the people he likes, but but actually he's kind of broadening that. Right. And, and it's someone he knows, and I mean they've probably known each other for a long time, so he may have you know some affinity with him right. with Blaine, but it's not is clearly not a friend. It's a rival. Right. Well, and not only does he not throw Blaine under the bus, which Blaine does to him, like he kind of says, take him. (laughs) 
So he could do that. Like, I don't like Blaine anyway, so I'm just going to hang back and try not to be right. the first one right. picked. So I he have doesn't, a metal rod. And so he doesn't, he doesn't do that. But also, you're right, he's proactive. He right. not only just... So he doesn't actively, um, you know, tell her to get Blaine. But he doesn't even just hang back and let her sort of pick. He, right, and hope. Right, he picks up you know, whatever weapon he can. And he kind of goes out there. He's not dragged out. He well, goes I don't know. out. She does pick him by eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I mean, that's... Yeah, but it's like... <laughs> but <I'm>, yeah. <laughs> he seems to have accepted that this is going to end badly. And yes. the most what I can do is go out swinging. And right. doesn't seem to begrudge the fact that it's him rather than Blaine. Like... I mean, I'm sure nobody's going to mourn Blaine if he's not around anymore. Like, you know, not that he's happy that he's saving Blaine or anything, but there's a little bit of a self-sacrificial impulse there that is at least willing to fight for the group, even if, you know. So, I don't know. I was, I thought that was actually a pretty good moment for him. No, that I think you're right, and and I would say if if there's another moment, um, it's right at the end. Um, I, I think I think he's got a he he definitely has a growth moment because you know again kind of contrasting him to Blaine, you've got Blaine who threatens to sue anyone who speaks about his virginity mm-hmm. because you know people care about that. Yeah, um, Xander on the other hand is totally willing to live up to what he's what he is at that point yeah and and he says you know just for the record you were right i'm an idiot and god bless you yeah. <laughs> you know it's like like he you know he's, he's honest he, he's willing to say you know what i made a mistake it was stupid yeah and and let's move on here and, and so i do think we get we get that amount of growth from him so i yeah well whereas blaine is still stuck on the superficial uh what does everyone think of me Right. I think Sanders uh and that's have a not little bit s- of a have a little bit of a wake up call in like in this moment what I am glad of is that I didn't die. And and right. who cares really, you know, we can start caring tomorrow about what people think of me. Oh, yeah. Right now I am yeah. just happy to be alive and thank you for coming. Right. You know? That's not to say his normal teenage urges won't at some point matter to him again. Of it's just not. that <laughs> Of course not. It's... But but he's at least like you said, there's some growth, you know, he's, right. he's developed a little bit, uh, you know, and maybe, maybe his image isn't quite as important as it was mm-hmm. a couple hours ago or something. Yeah. But, uh, I, so, so yes, there are some redeeming qualities, even though Xander doesn't always, uh, look the best in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh so you you mentioned wanting to kind of move on to angel there i think um i do want to talk about angel okay um well okay yeah let's talk about angel i I don't want to say a lot about him yet because we still don't we still haven't seen a lot of him you know and 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 you know we get this one scene in the bronze and uh yeah and xander's like oh what that weird guy that warned her about all the vampires i mean that's really all we know about angel yep. so far is yep. that he's he just kind of shows up and and true to form 
says a few cryptic things. Yep. Fades gives. back into the night. <laughs> yep. But not before giving Buffy his coat. So I didn't know if there's something more significant to that, you'll have to enlighten me because I'm not, mm-hmm. and maybe we have to wait and see, but, and maybe this is kind of stupid or whatever, but like, so with the giving of the coat to me, <laughs> that is sort of the universal symbol for going steady, right? Like if it's the 1950s, <laughs> like the it, letter jacket, it would be the girl in the letter jacket, you know, <laughs> that, that that's, that's that image to me. So to jump ahead to Doctor Who for a little bit, is this a little bit of a euphemism for, you know, maybe a hint as to, you know, I don't know where their relationship is going to go or whatever, but, mm. you know, I mean, Xander certainly sees that as something to be jealous of. Um, so it's really not about her being cold. It's about, you know, what that image evokes of a guy yeah. giving a girl his jacket that's too big for her and things like yeah. that. So. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, so, of course, you don't want to give too much away. But, yeah, I mean, it's such an obvious move. Yeah. Right. So I, I think you're asking the right questions as far as all that goes. Um, I mean, as far as going steady, it's, as far as we know, the third time that they've seen each other. So, yeah, no, and, no. And, and I'm, yeah. You know, I mean, like. I don't mean yeah, that so, literally. Yeah. But, but that's, to me, what that imagery yeah. always suggests. Well, and, and yeah, and I think that's totally, you know, Xander's running commentary there about, you know, Angel being attractive and, and mm-hmm. all of this and how this wasn't mentioned. And and this is Buffy's third time seeing them, uh, seeing Angel. But as far as we know, it's the first time that either Xander and Willow have seen Angel. Right, right, yeah. Because Buffy sees him once late, you know, late at night in the dark. You know, uh-huh. just the two of them in an alley. Yeah. Second time, same thing in a crypt. <laughs> right. And right. And, and then and he now... showed up. He kind of saw what happened in the bronze. Right. But but I don't think anybody else saw him then. He was just yeah. sort of hovering and finding out what was going on. Right. Which gives the impression that maybe he's doing more of that than we even know. Sure. Um, yeah. But, but... Yeah, again, this is, as far as we know, the first time that Xander and Willow... Well, Xander, we pretty much know because he says it. Oh, is that the weird guy? Yeah. I mean, we know he hasn't seen him. And, and yeah. we get the implication that Willow yeah. is is making an assumption. An educated she, guess, yeah. That, right. Well, right. that must be Angel, yeah. Um. So, the yes, the coat is significant. I mean, he says, you look cold. And, of course... Well, I, I want to get to Buffy, too. But, but Buffy takes it, of course, not the way that he means it as far as temperature wise, yeah. but you know, yeah. she thinks that he means, um, you know, she's being, uh, callow or not callow. Um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Callous. Callous. Yes. Thank you. And callow, totally <laughs> not callow. Um, the, uh, yes, that's, she's being callous. And, and of course he means the other way around, but, but then even more significant is that at the end he lets, not let's kind of tells her to keep the to coat. keep it right that she, you know he's cool without it yeah um or or warm without it whatever the case may be uh-huh. um so yes all of those significant things and she takes that as significant because he walks away and she says oh boy yeah <laughs> like like again there's a suggestion there and and not that anything is like you said they've only met three times i don't think 
we're meant to take it that anything is happening off screen, but no. even she seems to, there's some, I mean, A, there's an attraction, obviously, that she's yes. acknowledging to the camera there, but that it's it's almost kicked it up a notch at this point. Like, we've ascended to a new level of yeah. attractiveness by the end well, of this it, episode. It, it, it's almost uh, it, your move now, mm-hmm. you know, kind of moment. It's, it's yeah, there, there's something there. There's an attraction. There's, there you know, and it's it's not just the attraction of his attractiveness, right. um, you know, to her, but it's also the attraction of the mysterious, the, oh, yeah. the cryptic, yeah. you know, nature, the... the yeah. Um, right, the kind of dark and dangerous and mysterious yeah. and all yes. that stuff that... The brooding stranger. Poor yes. Xander can't. Yeah, he he has, he has no chance, <laughs> but he doesn't recognize it, um, at least at this point. So yeah, but and again, we still don't really know that much about Angel. You know, there's, you know, we have to go back to the the comment from the first episode of, you know, I didn't say I was your friend, but you know, I mean, he's certainly seeming pretty friendly to her now. I sure. think, you know, we're meant to make some assumptions about. Right, and he's he's grappling with the fork guy, so he's not, you know, doesn't seem to be on the side of, at least not entirely on the side of the vampires if he's out getting right. into fights with them, or some yeah. of them anyway. Fork guy. The fork if there guy. was ever a less effective, you know, Name fiend. <laughs> yeah, I, I you thought know. it was really funny. I had that in my sort of, Buffy speak notes of her. Yeah. He's like, a guy with a giant fork. This guy's coming. The fork guy. <laughs> like her, the look on her face when she says that was pretty priceless. Uh, the, um, yeah, well, and of course, fork guy. It, wh- who Fork guy's a little bit uh, of a red herring. Yeah, who, who would be scary in any other context, right? Becomes yeah. um, emasculated sort of yeah. by the, the, presence of miss french who right um clearly just sort of looks at him and and he goes away running yeah. which and i know we already talked about her but but it did bring up some so you 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 mentioned the whole you know mythological origins mm-hmm. um and and they refer yeah again to sirens and the um irish sea maidens um right in in giles has sort of that quick reference there and and other mythological stuff so you know again we get this sense of evil things you know being real and Mm -hmm. being being older but but not quite in the way that we always thought they were right you know there's Mm -hmm. there's this idea of there are stories about about different you know, and, and I'm sort of generalizing, obviously, off this one thing, but it's not, you know, again, it's not just vampires. It's, um, you know, we're on the Hellmouth and, and we get the, um, Buffy says, you know, it's a center of mystical convergence. We're not, you know, we're not um, expected to think that it's just vampires There are all kind of, of weird things going on here. Right. Um, well, and so I thought it's interesting. So if we count the first two episodes as sort of one episode like one mm-hmm. story. So yeah. in the third story now, um, we get a third, you know, we talked last time about the witch is the, the idea of the witch being a different kind of evil or a different kind of monster than the vampires that the vampires, you know, are, you know, 
kind of magical and supernatural monsters, mm-hmm. right? And the witches being humans who aren't in themselves supernatural, but have accessed, tapped some sort of supernatural power that they're using. Um, And then again, now in, I feel like this is a third type of monster, which is what I would call more of a natural monster. Mm -hmm. And that it's not magical or supernatural. It's a giant carnivorous bug that, I mean, if it has a magical ability, I guess it's the shape shifting. Um, and, and like the sentience, like the intelligence of it, but basically it's just a giant bug. Like Buffy does research on it and learns its weaknesses based on actual praying mantises. So there's no, she doesn't use anything against it that in theory she didn't learn from researching insects. So you're not casting spells. You're not, you're not not, like, no, it's a, it's, literally just a giant bug and it's funny that last time uh uh with the zombies it made you feel like the zombies in doctor who it made you feel like we were in buffy for a moment this time with the giant (laughs) bug insect and the rubbery arm that comes out of frame and grabs the teacher's head and yanks him away and everything (laughs) i thought are we in doctor who for a moment like that's that's kind of what it like a big a big campy rubber monster yeah. You know, and it's sure. a, and it's a natural monster. It's something that is, you know, evil, I guess, maybe, I guess because it's intelligent and preying on innocent people that sort of makes it responsible for its actions. But on the other hand, seems to just be um more like a wild animal that sort yeah. of uh just not really has any higher purpose or grand plan. It's really just looking to mate and eat and make more little she mantises and yeah and just just propagating its its lifestyle and its you know yeah no i i think that's right and and so i think that goes back even to our discussion last week about you know magic you know having sort of a it, you know it, again juxtaposing it to doctor who doctor who if that's science fiction with a uh, heavy helping of fantasy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is fantasy with a heavy helping of science fiction. Yeah, and and you're not. I think you're totally right. It's, we're not looking at something that's fantastical in the way that demons or magic right. or whatever is. You're looking at something. Um, it's not supernatural. It's it's like it's it's like super evolved. Maybe yeah. it's yeah. like you, you, you know it's 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 sort of an accelerated um, evolution, you know, so to speak. But again, you know, so, you know, where we had magic going on in a laboratory, you know, in the, in the science room last time, again, we're, we're in a science room, you know, to start, well, not immediately to start because we start in Xander's brain, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in his daydream, but, you know, he wakes up and boom, we're, you know, we're in a science lab. Room. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're working with, you know, natural laws and, and physics and stuff here. But again, you're working on this going into the idea that this is a basis for some fairy tales or that there was something similar historically that became fairy tales and became fantastical mm-hmm. based on this supernatural, this not supernatural, this. Well, no, than, it's, it's natural. It's completely natural. It's natural. Yeah, it's like, from the natural. It's not, there's no, this is not like a, yeah. a spiritual monster. 
Right. Like, whereas, and, in, whereas the the old ones and the vampires to me seem more of a spiritual thing. Yeah. Like it's a spirit that infects you. Whereas this is a mm-hmm. a highly evolved insect, really. Right. Right. Um, and so, and and you can explain, like you mentioned earlier about the pheromones and the hormones yeah, and that kind of right. thing. As like a chemical, you, you could almost you could almost explain her um, metamorphosing as a psychological sort of thing, like. She's giving off these pheromones that just make her look like, mm-hmm. uh, like a hallucinogenic yeah, or some sort. Yeah, of, like yeah. a person or whatever. And so, so you could almost argue that because Xander doesn't see her as her true self until he's drugged, right. which you know could be an effect of the drug to to cut through that hallucinogen because that's also the point where he admits that he loves Buffy. Right. You right. know, he's he's seeing things and it. And and I think those two things go hand in hand because he's seeing one, his true feelings for Buffy, mm-hmm. and you know without his own self deception right. at any point, like he, he can't you know his this is some kind of drug that just cuts through the BS, yeah, <laughs> so to speak, right. And it also right. and her true form and it right and now he's also seeing her in her true form. Right. So I think I think there's a lot to that and and. Totally, yeah. totally makes sense that there's there's a natural sort of element to this, uh, this idea. Yeah. So, so uh, I wasn't necessarily expecting that. Like I said, that's more what I expect from Doctor Who. Like I was yeah. more expecting it to be more magical. So like vampires, witches, demons, werewolves, things like that. Whereas I wasn't necessarily expecting like, you know, like like I said, more kind of wild animals who are just. Mm-hmm you know wicked though they may be are kind of just living a normal wild animal lifestyle and and looking to sort of eat and make other animals that's kind of all they're there for um that kind of came as a surprise to me so i thought it was interesting like in the first three episodes we get three different you know types of monster that they're facing yeah yeah um so i guess um just thinking, you know, just sort of going through the characters. I I know you want to talk about Buffy a bit too, because I think we do get some some good stuff there. Uh, did you have Did you have some things you wanted to say about her? Um. Well, you know, I thought it was interesting that you know her intelligence was emphasized in this episode. That you know we've seen her um, her capability as far as what she can, you know, how she can fight and everything. But you know, we've got a teacher. Um, you know, singling her out as someone in who he sees a lot of potential, um, you know, and, and who's someone who's starting to believe what mm-hmm. her, the authority figures are saying about her, um, and therefore not putting in the effort that she might. Um, so, um, you know, and no one can see this potential because of the destruction that follows around her. Um, so they see her as destructo girl, as she calls it, and that's what yeah. she sees. Um, so yeah. she apologizes and he says, don't be sorry, be smart. Um, and I thought it was interesting, you know, she kind of said, ironically, you know, like about her being in the school, oh, it's going to be great. Uh, or he says, it's going to be great. And she says, uh, great in a bad way. And he doesn't answer, which to me is kind of like, it could be great in a really great way, you know, like he doesn't mean it ironically. He means it. No, you have the potential to do great things. Yeah. You know, you don't just have 
the ability to fight monsters and destroy gymnasiums that you actually right, have the right. ability to do a lot of good. Um, mm -hmm. So I thought that was kind of an interesting dynamic that they introduced to the character. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and of course that inspires her to be the one, yeah, to find out what's going on with all of the insects and yeah. everything. And where and, are the books on bugs? <laughs> yes. Well, and, and we go from that to her telling Giles where to find the sonar. Right. Uh, yeah. Recording. Right. Her homework that. pays off. Yeah. It, 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 now the student has become the master, right. so to speak. So um, can I say, I totally want to um, take a course in entomythology. <laughs> there you go. Bugs, bugs and fairy tales. That Sounds would be great. <laughs> that would be cool. Um, I, I think, yeah, there's a couple things there. So, so with regard to Dr. Gregory and Buffy um, and poor Dr. Gregory, he seems like he would have been a great guy to get to know, but yeah. we see him for, you know, all of, the first 10 minutes of the episode if that yeah, i think two minutes yeah yeah i mean not very long one scene um, and then he gets off the so one i think that you know it's a clear it seems to me to be a clear juxtaposition against um the, the 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 relationship that we start to see forming between Dr. Gregory and Buffy is juxtaposed against Miss French and Xander. So it's it's how a good nurturing um, teacher student relationship should be. Yeah. You know, it's it's completely appropriate and uplifting and and yeah. um, in Willow's words, he's the only one of the teachers who doesn't think Buffy's a felon. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. you know, and and even Dr. G or even Giles says uh, he was a civilized man. I liked him. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so I mean, I I think that's that's one aspect to, to all of that is is just that juxtaposition. We we get we get the good uh, nurturing relationship, which unfortunately are too f few and far between. Well, hopefully they're in the real world. They're they're more than yeah that. But um, and the mentors aren't uh, you know decapitated and right exsanguinated and everything <laughs> yeah that would be bad um i think the other thing there just with dr gregory is that you know clearly the victims are not limited to those who sort of dabble in the magical world and whatever and, sure, and yeah. i know we've seen we've seen other victims but it's just sort of that reminder of anyone's fair game yeah. <laughs> you know so to speak as far as as far right. as right and, um, and in this case through no fault of his own like he didn't yeah uh, yeah he didn't do any of the things that Xander and Blaine did to try to, you know, right. You know, follow any of her leads or follow her back to her place or anything like that. She just sort of snatched him then and there. Yeah. Although I would say, I, I would agree that it's not through his fault, but he, he clearly, clearly seems to be the one who's targeted because, you well, know, she, she wanted comes his in. Job, yeah. yeah. She wanted, his job specifically, not just a teacher's job right, yeah. or, or whatever, yeah. like, right. Um, but it wasn't, and, and the timing wasn't, of his talking about bugs and all that, like who know, you know? Yeah. But I don't think he, um, shares any of the sort of responsibility that maybe the younger boys did when they sort of played into her whole sort mm -hmm. of, you know, yeah. like we were talking about with them wanting to, have this as much as she does, even though they don't realize what it is they want. Um, right, right. He's just sort of an innocent bystander 
who happens to have the job she needs to get the victims that she wants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. No, I think you're right. I don't think we, we can lay any sort of the same blame on him. So going back to Buffy for a minute, um, I just wanted to point out a couple of things. Uh, basically, one, looking at like going way back to the first couple episodes, we've got Buffy who is she doesn't really want to take on the responsibility of the slayer, right? She's sort of trying to look to get away. And then, and then she does come around in order to save her friends and, and all of that, but it's not, I don't want to say there's no intelligence there because certainly she, you know, she has to know stuff and and do things, but it's, you know, it's, it's all sort of reactive. She just kind of goes out. But in, in the last episode in which we get her recognizing that the cheerleaders are the ones who, um, are, are being targeted and, and, you know, she's the one who figures that out. But even again, that's kind of because she's into cheerleading. It's, it's because she already knows about it. She doesn't have to do much, but here in, in the, you know, in this episode, we, we get her first foray into that, you know, into research mode, into the idea that, you know, it's not just it's not just what you know, it's not just what you can do, it's what you have have to do, what you have to learn in order to, you know, save Xander, of course, is one of them, and, and also Blaine and all of that, but also to fight evil, just sort of in general, in sort of the vague, you know, capital E sense. <laughs> you know, yeah. she's it it's it, so I, I think we're getting that sort of tra- trajectory, and I think that goes along with the ideas that um, Dr. Gregory was talking about uh, that you pointed out about, um, you know, she can go on to do great things, but she has to apply herself. It's not, it's not just, and of course this is stuff that Giles has said before, but it's interesting because that's, you know, again, that's a sort of a different relationship. And we talked a little bit about, Mm -hmm. you know, Giles being, you know, sort of a father figure, but not quite, you know, this, this is clearly, this is someone who's, has no reason to be invested in Buffy in any way. And yet Mm -hmm. Dr. Gregory is, and he's, he's the first one to really kind of care about Buffy as Buffy, you know, to kind of see. And he kind of calls her on it too. Like it starts as like correcting her for not paying attention, not doing her homework and then turns into actually him encouraging her Mm -hmm. because it seems like she's going to be punished to begin with. So, you know, so he cares about her enough to kind of tell her what she needs to work on. Yeah. You know. Um, and I know we've kind of gone over our time limit here for for the episode, but um, just one last thing to and and on on the same note, and maybe it's obvious already, but I think you know we get that you you mentioned the destructo girl thing, you know, destructo girl, that's me. Um, you know, it's 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 the idea that you know others don't see us the way we see ourselves and clearly Buffy has an idea of herself as a slayer in that sense and you know a slayer is someone who destroys destroys life yeah. in a way and and she destroys things that goes along with it and the same um you know the same sort of idea when she's talking with Angel about you know, her taking him saying that she's cold, meaning that she's being callous, as we were talking about before. Like she, right. you know, it's it's like she has these sort of preconceived notions about herself. Sure. Um, and assumes that other people see her the same right. way. Right. 
Right, right, right. Exactly. So I, you know, I don't necessarily want to make too much of that, but I think that's there, and that's again sort of in juxtaposition of Xander's own way that he sees himself and his own uh, self-deceiving, you know, nature mm-hmm. and 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 failure to see him uh, himself in that way too. So, so I think you get a lot of those sorts of, um, you know, again, you know, high school is hell and these are all sort of normal teenage feelings and things that you have to work through and yeah, uh, on the hormonal side, on the mental side and, and, and all of that. So lots of, lots of great stuff here. This actually was not one of my favorite episodes, but, um, you know, it's one that I've, I've come around to enjoy a bit and, and I do think that there's a lot more kind of below the surface um if you if you want to look deeper than just the the crazy rubber arms (laughs) like you were talking about before so yeah um anyway yeah it's 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 always fun to see when you actually get talking about these episodes how even uh the more uh mediocre turn out to actually have more going for them, yeah. which is a perfect transition into <laughs> Aliens of London. Yes, indeed. And so now we can talk. Because I, so, I, had, I had warned you about yeah. the fact that this is a two-parter. It's the first two-parter right. uh, in Doctor Who. So uh, if you hate this, this Levine, uh, join us next week <laughs> when we'll get to see them a lot more. But... Um, yeah. So I, this is not this is not a fan favorite. Um, and in going back and rewatching, I know you're supposed to start, but I'm going to start, and then uh-huh, you can really uh-huh. start. Okay. Um, in going back and rewatching, I uh, I understand that, and I uh, and I think a lot of the negative uh, opinion is surrounding the Slovene, not even so much them in their alien form, but more the kind of you know, fat Just say people it. and fart farting jokes. jokes. Yes. Yep. There's fart yep. jokes. The, There's a lot of them. The, the, the bathroom humor and everything. Yep. So, um, and I think perfectly justified. It's, it's not particularly sophisticated. It's quite annoying. Not Russell Davies' finest creation. Um, but I think there's actually a lot uh, going on under the surface with some of the more character-related mm-hmm. things that are happening. So, uh that's my way of saying that I think we'll find plenty to talk about. So you can start with what you want to discuss. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm attempting to reserve judgment until I've seen the second part. Cause I've not watched, I've, I've withheld my viewing. Um, even though I really wanted to kind of finish it out. Um, sure. So I'm not, Probably well, I think the, gonna... fart, the fart jokes are mostly behind us because we, now that we've now that they've revealed their air, their alien form, yes, uh, that's that. Yeah, we'll just leave it at that. Pun intended. Yes, the fart jokes are behind us. Um, they're not behind us. I'm sure we're going to be making more. No. Um, anyway, wow, we have really digressed here. The so what I wanted to say is that. I think I probably am going to want to look more at the relationships and the character growth and that sort of thing in this particular episode, because I, I, I don't know. I mean, we only have half the plot so far and, and to talk about the monsters without kind of knowing what they're doing <laughs> kind of seems, yeah. um, yeah, yeah, kind of, sure. kind of seems a little premature maybe, but so one of the things that I, I wanted to bring up and I almost brought this up last week with, um, 
the the unquiet dead is the whole relationship and and sort of the illusions of of the relationship between doctor the doctor and the rose and and so i say this starting with last week because we get the scene in in the beginning of the episodes um where they're both running around flying the tart or whatever the tardis does moving it through time and space um yeah i think they fly it okay i think that's right they and then it. landing it is landing the right term um materializing it yeah maybe? What, whatever i feel like the people say it materializes they, somewhere they, so when they materialize in cardiff in um 1869 and they they're there and they're joyful and happy and fall to the ground um in a very sort of post-coital <laughs> kind of way. Um, and, and I almost brought that up. And then I thought, you know what? No, I'm way reading or viewing or whatever, way too much into that. Um, and then we get this episode where, uh-huh. where we kind of get some more of these sorts of illusions that, that they're, well, you know, to compare it to Buffy, you know, with the angel and, and, and Buffy thing going on, like, like they're, they're hinting at something that isn't quite there, but maybe could be, or maybe mm-hmm. will be, or maybe it's the start of something. And, mm-hmm. and, and so we get, um, we, you know, we do get the idea that, I mean, a, explicitly stated that it's not a sexual relationship between the doctor. We get the, the policeman who asks, is this, mm-hmm. is this a sexual is, you know, is being a companion, a sexual thing. Yes, yeah. And, and so he says, um, no, it's not. And Rose says, well, he's not my boyfriend. He's much better than that. And mm-hmm. so of course one has to wonder, well, what, what does she mean by that? And, and what's going on there? Um, and so there's also the idea that um, actually you you brought up when we were sort of discussing um, before we started recording uh, the, the well, again, kind of going back to Buffy as well. There's there's the doctor's 900 years old and, and she's a much younger woman than he is. And, and there's there's an implication there that the people around them think that this is a predatory perhaps relationship mm-hmm. and, and that, that or at the very least unhealthy, unhealthy or inappropriate, if, yeah. if not predatory relationship going on here, that somehow Rose has been duped into going along with the doctor as the older man. Um, although mm-hmm. they have no idea, of course, how much older he is. Yeah. Um, it's a hell of an age gap. Um, so yeah, it, it so I, I guess I guess this is all to say that maybe my instinct wasn't that far off that maybe they are hinting at something here yeah. e- even though that's not um it's denied by both the doctor and Rose that there's that there's anything romantic um involved here but but there certainly seems to be allusions and hints that it's more than friendship per se. Mm -hmm. And, and so, and, and perhaps that's just sort of implied by the term companion anyway. But, um, yeah, so I, I wanted to bring that up, get your thoughts on that and, and just sort of see where, where that goes. Cause it's definitely something that I picked up on, um, in these last couple of episodes. No, I, there's definitely a lot there. Um, and yeah, I mean, well, and it's interesting, like, you know, they both sort of react 
to the suggestion that it's a sexual relationship. So that seems to not be what's going on, but um, but that doesn't preclude it from being romantic necessarily, you know, or even well, true, you know, um, you know. So they kind of deny that anything has physically happened, but I think there is um, definite, you know, kind of earlier you called it tension. There's a definite tension, you know, aboard the TARDIS. And, uh, you know, and... and but not a sexual like, tension, apparently. <laughs> or maybe it is. Well, I don't know. you can have sexual tension without having sex. Well, yes, that's sure. True. You know, like, I... So, you know, we'll kind of... I, I We'll see where it goes. But I don't... Uh, <laughs> you know, I think that's definitely something... And... and I was explaining this to you earlier too, like, you know, the way they kind of, that scene in the last episode where they're sort of falling around laughing and, you know, and it is a suggestive and kind of the way that the show, because it is designed more for family viewing, um, often the more adult themes, you do get them obliquely or euphemistically, you know, or suggestively that, you know, while there are, you know, sometimes, I mean, here they make a, they ask if the, you know, if the relationship is sexual. So it's not like it's a taboo that nobody can say sex or something, but, um, but often if they're wanting to sort of give the idea of something going on, they do it very much beneath the surface, um, and keep it more sort of, um, you know, just above the heads of, the seven-year-olds that right, are watching. Right, right. But that doesn't mean that even a seven-year-old couldn't pick up on the fact that the Doctor and Rose clearly have a special sort of relationship that's starting to form. Yeah. You know? And, you know, now the Doctor says a lot in this episode about domesticity, you know, and don't make this place domestic. <laughs> don't bring your mother in here. Don't bring your boyfriend in here. <laughs> that's not what this place is about. But... He does give her a key. Yes. Yes. Which is about as domestic as it gets. Yeah, that's so that's that's even worse than the than Angel giving Buffy his jacket. Right. <laughs> More suggestive. Right. I shouldn't say worse. I, I mean it's, it's not a bad thing, but it's not even it, moving in or it's not even going steady. It's you're giving her yeah. the key to your place. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And when Mickey she's, and, comes in. And she's in, already dressed up in his clothes. Right, right. His very own His period dress. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, when when Mickey first comes into the apartment, when he realizes they're back, and he comes in, what's she doing? She's sitting there, slumped down on the couch, playing with the key, you know? Mm. And it's kind of, you know, I thought that was kind of an interesting, that just as this old boyfriend is so excited that she's back, she's you know, thinking about the fact that, you know, I've got a key to the TARDIS. Yeah. And it's, but it, but it's complicated. Cause like you said, you know, so Mickey wants to hurt her, right? So he wants her to feel rejected. Like he feels rejected. Mm -hmm. So he says he took off some boyfriend he turned out to be. And in retaliation, she says, he's not my boyfriend. He's much better than that, which, you know, I think is, again, her turning that around on Mickey and you hurt me, so I'm not. I'm going to hurt you by saying, 
there are things more important than my boyfriend, i.e. Right. he's more yeah. important than you. Than you, yeah. Yeah, so that's right. a direct insult to Mickey. Like, I've found someone, he's not my boyfriend, he's better. Mm-hmm. So I don't need you, I've got him. But also, like you said, well, what is it? If he's not her boyfriend, then what is he? What is better than, you know, and the idea that if it's not a sexual relationship, it's certainly a level of intimacy that she sees as something higher or more important, you know, that she's been out experiencing all of time and space and has sort of seems to be have ha- seems to be having this epiphany about what is really important. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's interesting because I did want to talk about that aspect of Rose too because there's there's definitely she she is on that level, but at the same time she seems simultaneously excited and extremely dissatisfied because she's going out and seeing all this stuff but then you get this deep sense of isolation that we've that we've already seen in the doctor a bit um mm-hmm. for different reasons i think you know because we know that his planet is destroyed and all of this but yeah but with rose we get that great that great moment where you know she's talking um to the doctor and, and she says uh every conversation i have you just go have with you just goes mental uh, there's no one else I can talk to. I've seen all this stuff up there, the size of it, and I can't say a word to anybody. And and yeah, there's this there's this idea that she's going off and seeing all this great stuff. But oh my gosh, who's she gonna tell? And who would even right. believe her? And right. and then of course you know she talks about <laughs> aliens and spaceships and I'm the I'm the only one who knows they exist and then there's a spaceship that comes crashing <laughs> down and hitting Big Ben and yeah. land, you know crash landing into the Thames and and so um obviously right. there's so of course there's... she has of course she has an intimate relationship with the doctor because they're the only ones who are experiencing right so she's you know so I mean we've talked about his loneliness as sort of a theme and the companion being is some of an antidote to that. But then, you know, so, but while she's sort of having this new intimacy with the doctor, she's also maybe becoming a little bit lonely like him, maybe becoming more removed from her home um, and, and, her, and her family. And her humanity. Yeah. In a way. I mean, if, if that's, because you have to wonder, like, is, you know, the alienness of the doctor, is mm-hmm. it, I mean, obviously he can regenerate and stuff. So we know he's truly alien. He's not human yeah, per se. Biologically, but, right. But is part of his attitude and part of the things that he sees and the ways that he acts psychological insofar as, you know, it would, it would happen to anyone with, you know, from any planet, you know, right, who's sentient. Right you know, who, who has lived for 900 years and traveled all over time and space Mm -hmm. in this way. And, and you do sort of see this working itself out in a much, much smaller way so far, but, but it is happening in rows. Um, and so, yeah. And so that's, and that's exactly how relationships form, right? It's, it's, there's a commonality and then Mm -hmm. you build on that. And that's where, you know, maybe all this is going, you know, maybe it's just that 
it it's not even so much who the companion is, but the fact of the companionship that yeah. that cr- creates that kernel of the relationship that we're starting to see. And so even if it is innocent and non-sexual and whatever, um, mm-hmm. at this point, you know, we're just friends, so to speak, like there is clearly that thing that only they have together. And, and, yeah. um, well, and I want to, I want to jump off something you said, because I think it's a little bit of a, both and situation that is it is it this companion or is it just the fact of the companion Mm -hmm. so i think it is sort of you know the companion and what they represent sort of you know that is what they represent for the doctor is more of that someone to share it with someone to cure his loneliness someone to fill in all the different blanks in his life of varying kinds um <laughs> but and we'll i don't want well, to say stuff and, i don't want to say more than i should and and, and, but, and all right come on let, so let's face it we're we're bumping this up against joss whedon's work and of course in joss whedon's universe I the word, even the word companion that. has a much different connotation so i wasn't even thinking no, well, just... i wasn't even thinking of that i was thinking of <laughs> things i'm trying to stop myself from saying what's coming in the story sure, sure. that was my hesitation okay. but there is yeah <laughs> Yeah, companions for anyone. Just go watch Firefly, and <laughs> and there's a whole and and yeah. Maybe I don't know. Maybe that line was a reference to Firefly. For all I know, I mean, I know Russell Davies likes Buffy. Maybe he'd seen Firefly and thought, "I'm gonna put in a that line about is companion a sexual relationship?" Yeah, it that could be a little nod to Firefly. It could be. Um, where that is definitely the case, but um, <laughs> where, where there there is no relationship with a companion other than yeah <laughs> the physical yeah. Yeah. yeah um so so yeah no what my hesitation was trying to not specify what other needs the companions might fill mm. but but the companion sort of capital C as sort of an archetype does do that and that's sort of their role you know is sort of what they can do for the doctor but then i don't think that means that we shouldn't look at individual companions as characters and what they might and how different people might serve different needs and you know at different times and you know depending on what's going on in the story so you know i don't want to take that to mean that rose is just um you know I, i i don't think that means that the companions aren't allowed to have individual personalities and development. So I think it's also worth looking at Rose as a person and what she might, you know, bring to the doctor's life or what aspects of her being with the doctor might bring out. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple little things that in like uh, the commentaries or like behind the scenes that some of the actors said I thought was you know, just kind of interesting that Noel Clark, who plays Mickey, said um, of Rose's character that it it nothing nothing seems to be keeping her at home. That you know that the Doctor is clearly not just more exciting, but you know, much as she loves her mom and feels connected to her home in the Earth, she seems at this point to be on board with this lifestyle mm-hmm. and and there doesn't seem to be anything sort of tethering her back so like you were saying 
becoming less human a little bit, maybe. Um, and Christopher Eccleston, who plays the, the Ninth Doctor, said that the Doctor is lonely and Rose is bored. And that this is their... The, in, a, in a nutshell, this is the roles that they fulfill for each other. And he says that the Doctor loses some of his loneliness and Rose loses all of her boredom. So I thought that was just kind of a neat... Of up until this point in the story, mm-hmm. that's sort of, you know, the summary of the roles that they seem to be fulfilling for each other. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I, and, and I, I maybe I was a little too hasty to say, I, I don't mean to imply that Rose is becoming less human per se, but just that we're, we're getting that hint of more, more remote. Yeah. There, and 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 right from the beginning, you know, we saw the doctor's um, focus or or attention on things that are not the normal sorts of things that we as humans think of. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, forgetting people, you know, while at the same time he forgets people's names and and you know, I, I love that he calls keeps calling him Ricky. And yeah. he insists on calling. He's like, I think I know my name. You know your name? How stupid are you? It's yeah. Ricky. Yeah, yeah, and and. And that sort of thing. I, although, I mean, clearly he's taking the piss there. Um, mm-hmm. Not, yeah. not. Uh, that's that's certainly intentional. But he's, yeah. His his focus is is such on different things. And Rose, with her eyes being opened up to uh, the sorts of things that are happening, the sorts of things that you can accomplish, you know, by being mm-hmm. able to go anywhere through space and time. Um, yeah. I don't, it, I may, maybe I was wrong to say that she's, that she's, you know, sort of becoming less human or, or losing contact with humanity there, but it's more of a, she, in a way she's almost becoming more aware and, and to the others around her who aren't aware of that these things are going on, it, it could seem that she's becoming more like that doctor. And, and I wonder how much of that gives you sort of an, an insight to the, more of an empathic view of the doctor having been not in around 900 years old, at least based on his word, you know, who knows? I mean, he's as old as Yoda. Right. So, I mean, he's, (laughs) you know, he's been around the block a few times and I would have to imagine that your perspective changes, but maybe to call that less human is, is, Mm -hmm. is not quite right. So, you know, I I don't know at this point, we're only a few episodes in, Um, but I do like, what the doctor says about all of that. And, and, and he, he says it right out. He says, this is what I travel for to see history happening right in front of us. Um, he doesn't seem, he doesn't know. He says when first contact between humans and aliens occurs, which kind of seems like given as much as he's around right. England, at least, right. <laughs> you know, um, right. that, and and would be and, a big and, chapter in the history book. Yeah, yeah, he's he's he spent a lot of time on Earth. It it seems like that that might be something that he would know, but but clearly he doesn't, and and he's yeah. really excited at being able to witness this. Um, and then he also, but then he's there to witness, and only to witness. And it's interesting because in in the well, I mean. And then he starts interfering. And then he immediately <laughs> goes back on his, yeah. Yeah, but that, I mean, but that's that's the implication is he says he's not interfering. He says, you've got to handle this yeah. on your own. 
it's when the human race grows up and all of that. But then he senses yeah. something is wrong. And, yeah. and, and so of course he does interfere, but, but at least, at least he's giving lip service to this idea that he's an observer. Yeah. Even though we know he's not just an observer. I mean, he's, he's interacted um, with, with, um, what was that, races. what was that short story where about the time travelers that go back and they, are there for like an apocalyptic event. Do you know what I'm talking about? I know the story and I can't think of it offhand and, and that's going to bug me now. Um, Okay. Um, well I, that reminds me a lot I keep thinking of that because, um, from what I've read of some of the mythology of the classic series and everything, I think the idea, um, is that the time Lords as sort of a time traveling society are, in conception supposed to be sort of like the time travelers in that story Mm. um that they were observers and would you know travel through time as witness but never to interfere and and the doctor is someone who goes around uh you know getting his hands dirty and getting involved Mm. um that this would get him in trouble with the time lords (laughs) and that actually one of his regenerations was that he was summoned before the Time Lord Council. Oh. They 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 sentenced him as guilty for interfering, made him regenerate, and and put him on Earth, and he wasn't allowed to travel for like a whole couple seasons or something. Like literally, like they revoked his. <laughs> they they killed off a form, they, so he regenerated. They took away so his exe- TARDIS license. They executed him and and sentenced him to Earth. And he lived on Earth and couldn't travel. So, kind of built into the character is this a little bit of rebellion that. So he's kind of trying to maybe talk himself into the fact that he's only supposed to be there as an observer, but his instinct is to get involved and to, you know, interact with people and help them. Mm. So a little bit of. You know, some of the backstory of the show feeding into the characterization there a little bit, I think. Um, and he and, and the tension between his sense of duty to his people and his culture and what they're all about, that is sort of not perfectly uh, synthesized with his own natural instinct to mm-hmm. to, you know, want to help people and, you know, and to you know get involved and meet them and get to know them and everything. Yeah. Um the story by the way that that you were trying to think of is Vintage Season. Thank you. Yes. That's it. Yes. Um yes. But uh anyway, so yes, yeah. That's 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 interesting. Um Yeah, I don't know. I just I I I like that idea that that he one that he has a purpose because you know he doesn't always seem to (laughs) um but but that his that his primary goal is yeah it's it's a very it's a curious one it's not Mm -hmm. one he doesn't come by it like oh it's you know a sense of duty and you know blah 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 hoity-toity you know like just kind of no in fact helping people goes against his duty yeah which it's according to his people is to observe and to not interfere um Hmm. So there's who are you being dutiful to? Is it right to himself, to the the memory of his people, to a higher sense of purpose? You know, 
it's it's not always clear and i don't think he has that totally figured out because obviously he changes his mind about five minutes after he says you know i'm not gonna get involved yeah well and it's and it's inter- so um other than the first episode i mean he just sort of arrives at places somewhat randomly <laughs> like mm-hmm. he you know i mean and the first episode may he may have arrived there randomly as well we just don't see his arrival so we don't really know but but in in the end of the world he i mean he does go there sort of for a purpose but it's also just to watch we're here to watch the end of the world that's our purpose it's just we're here to watch it and of course he gets involved in um the unquiet dead he's he's i mean tourists yeah yeah and they miss the mark you know yeah and by both time and space yeah um and and end up in in cardiff and whatever but right. you know again they're like there's no real sense of reason why they're there it's just they're there and they're there to enjoy what being there allows them to enjoy like even though it's yeah. only cardiff <laughs> um yeah. and and then here i mean again there's kind of a purpose but it's just so that you know rose can check in yeah. you know and whatever not well and and once again they're off by, yep. by a year and so yeah i guess actually... and once again they serendipitously arrive just in time for you know an alien invasion <laughs> yeah for some momentous event in human history to be watched and that, and interfered right. with apparently yeah yep. um yeah there's a pattern i'm starting to notice this <laughs> um, the yeah well and the idea too that they don't go i mean it's not just accidentally it it's it's not just the the good fortune of ending ending up somewhere that needs their help but that their purpose is to go do fun stuff so they want to go watch you know an event just as spectators or they want to go visit a place they've never visited that the idea is that like what they're trying to do is just go be tourists and go you know have a good time sort of bopping around the universe mm-hmm. you know um well so, I- and it's interesting to think that because there is some time that passes between the unquiet dead and this episode, mm-hmm. at least a few days, I think at least it was. Yeah. Rose says she's been gone for a few days, but as so total. So if yeah. the end of the world took place in a couple of hours right. and the unquiet dead took place in a couple of hours, then there's a couple of days missing there. Right. Right. Now we have suggested that how, well, you can actually tell time in the TARDIS is unclear. Um, but yeah, there is, and you know, whether it's just in your own imagination or whether you go into some of the spin-off media like novels and audiobooks and things like that, the idea that we're not seeing all of, there are other stories happening in between the episodes that right. we're not necessarily privy to. Right. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just it's 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 a cool idea. I want to hop into TARDIS and and go <laughs> view some historical stuff. Um, but but not but not end up all the places that the Doctor ends up with yeah, apocalypse well, having to be prevented and um if yeah, seeing as I don't have his tools, I I yeah, would rather not have to do his job. Um, yeah. So, well, since we're on the TARDIS, too, by the way, I did note 
probably primarily because you said to be sure to note that um, Bad Wolf. I'll try to. I'll try to not. Uh, well, no. I mean, you by the nose so much next time. It, it, I mean, it's right there. So I mean, I'd like to think that I would have noticed it anyway. Um, uh huh. But but yeah, you, you you pointed out last week um, the mention of the big bad wolf, and and now there's a bad wolf graffiti mark. Uh, on the TARDIS, mm-hmm. um, and then you know, speaking of the TARDIS, when it disappears and Mickey runs into the wall, that's beautiful. I'm still not a fan of Mickey. Um, still although, like it when Mickey gets slapped around yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I'm okay with his slapstick. Yeah, exactly. Um, although, I mean, at least in this one, he has a somewhat legitimate gripe of yeah. you know you've been Everyone gone for did a freaking think he year. was a murderer. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, and the police have called me in for questioning three times at least. And yeah, I like I like that the reason he hasn't found someone else is because everyone thinks I killed Rose. So <laughs> that's his only reason why he hasn't gone off and just dumped the, her. The implication there being he perhaps has tried to find. Yeah, someone exactly. Else. <laughs> yeah, only because everyone thinks I murdered you. Yeah. Oh, well, great. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, have you tried online dating? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but the, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, there, and then, well, and the other thing I had down here for the TARDIS was the key, which you've already mentioned. And, and there's, um, uh, okay. She has a key now. So, I mean, does it, so does this mean we're going to see Rose sort of going around in her, in the TARDIS on her own? Cause apparently she already knows something about navigating it. Although I guess we don't know how much. Um, right. Um, no, not really. No, no she never becomes... Uh, I, I don't think the Doctor spends a whole lot of time teaching anybody else to fly the TARDIS. And, no, but she's... Uh, I mean, she's helping him in the in the right. previous episode. Um, so there's there's at least something going on there. That, yeah. That, whether it's, you know, he just says, push that lever and she pushes it. Or what, That's pretty what's much. going on. Yeah. Uh, okay. All right, yeah. so no, no joy riding in the TARDIS. Uh, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not intentionally, anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, fair enough. Um, um, we're getting a little short on time. Not hugely, but there is something I want to make sure to bring up. Something that I brought up in the introduction that I think this is the first time it's really um, becoming... Uh, kind of to the forefront. So I want to make sure to mention it here, um, which is this aspect of the show, which I don't know that that the writers were using this term amongst themselves, but seems to be, when they talk about it, it seems to be dealing with this kind of fan fiction aspect to the show. That, again, like I said, these are people, the people who are writing it are the same people that were watching it 30 years ago. So they've spent 30 years thinking about <laughs> their own, if I was going to tell a Doctor Who story, what would I do right. and everything. Right. And the, the basic impulse of fan fiction, whether it's the crap you can find online or whether it's something, I, I kind of think of the highest form being like, Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Where, you know, like this is basically high art fan fiction. Yeah. So the basic impulse between all of it being wanting to fill in gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, untold stories, you know, s- missing scenes, aspects of characters that weren't explored in the original. That's basically the impulse that's being served by it. That 
there that something that you love there's a gap in your um a gap that you want to fill mm -hmm. so um so what kinds of things are these writers bringing to it 30 years after the fact and one of the things that russell t davies really wanted was for it to be a more um emotionally realistic um you know and you know and even just more of a common sense type of a story you know that in certain genre things you, there's certain things you just take for granted that never get acknowledged but basic questions that you know an audience likes to see answered so that he was talking about in the commentary in the classic series nobody ever really questioned the fact of when a companion goes off the, with the doctor what happens in the meantime you know what does their family you know if we even see a family mm. what what do they think are do they miss this person um are there you know are there search parties involved does the companion miss whatever family or friends they had um what happened what's the reaction when they go back how do they explain where they've been all these sorts of basic realistic things that you'd have to deal with yeah. if this were real life um and so to that effect we get a family for rose you know and we see in you know and again the first time i watched this i wasn't expecting i was expecting i think more like in the classic show that we're just focused on the adventure and we're not necessarily going to go into the detail of the domestic life as the doctor right. would put it um but uh but here we get, you know, how distraught Rose's mother is when her daughter goes missing. Mm -hmm. And we get, you know, the fact that everyone, including Jackie, suspected Mickey and completely ostracized him for this. Um, and, you know, some of the anger that they feel when they when she comes back and they realize where she's been and everything. Right. Um, so I think that's a really interesting nuance and adds a lot of texture i think to the show and to the characters um so i don't know whether you have any thoughts on that that's just something i think is a nice a nice layer that they've added so i appreciate that from a storytelling point of view yeah. that they're taking the time to really flesh out those real relationships yeah no and and i think that's interesting i mean obviously it's something that you can't really like, you know, so, so most of the sorts of fan fiction um, types of things that you get end up being like reboots or, yeah. um, you know, movie versions of TV shows that came out, you know, a while ago or that sort of thing. Um, as far as this type of fan fiction, like you're talking about, like well-produced fan fiction. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that's, it's an interesting aspect because of what you were saying before, um, either in the introduction or even one of, you, you know, previous episodes where, you know, that's just the nature of the doctor is to regenerate himself. And so you can explore mm -hmm. all of these types of things that it doesn't necessarily matter what, what's been explored before. Like you, you have a whole new doctor, you can explore this kind of stuff. And if, if part of that includes getting to know more about the companions and the, the human mm -hmm. aspect of, of those things, that's, I think that's interesting. That's, that's, that's a good aspect to the show. And, and so, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know that I have anything particularly um, 
uh, you know, intelligent or whatever, or, or analytic anyway to say about it. But I, I do think that um, that's interesting that that you can have a show like that where it it does have the continuous feel and yet can focus on such completely different things. Mm-hmm. We probably should at least talk a little bit about the aliens because I mean, the episode is titled "Aliens of London," and that's true. Although I've uh, I've seen it, you know, suggested by some people that maybe the who are the aliens of London? Is it the Slovene or is it the Doctor and Rose? Wow, that is a, is Rose becoming like you said, kind of a stranger in her own home but but so be that as it may let's talk about this Levine well now you bring that up I don't know <laughs> I I was assuming or it both, was the, or both I was assuming it was the actual aliens that crash land in the middle of London <laughs> and I think that is easily a legitimate you know but but Which, maybe it's a maybe it's a nuance which, a double entendre. Actually, I guess the alien that actually crash lands isn't so much of an alien as a pig. A th- pigs in space. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> I did not even pick up on that. That's funny. And there's this great story that uh, Julie Gardner, who was an executive producer who worked with Russell Davies, um, she, sorry, I just completely distracted you. Well, I'm thinking about the big bad wolf now. Oh! <laughs> and the pigs in space, and oh my god. All right. All right, I don't know. Well, there we go. I, yes, there's, there's. I'm sure, many layers of... Yeah, anyway. many, many layers of sophisticated storytelling. Um, <laughs> so, Julie Gardner, who was an executive producer uh, who works with Russell T. Davies, um, yeah. so worked with him to bring back the show, she wasn't a fan of it when it was on before. So she was sort of, you know, maybe saw a couple episodes or whatever, um, but wasn't, didn't really know much about it and probably, you know, believed a lot of the stereotypes about, mm-hmm. you know, it not being of very great quality or whatever. And yeah. so, and, and had just gone through this whole period of psyching herself up and getting really excited about the storytelling possibilities and, oh, this is going to be great. It's going to, oh, she just got so jazzed. And then, Darn if the first day's filming isn't running through the corridor of the hospital with a little person in a pig costume in a spacesuit, and <laughs> her just thinking to herself, "What have I signed myself up for?" So that story just makes me smile because it's just perfect that that would be your first day of filming. Yeah. Um. Um. But yeah. So these are not. Uh, these are not the best aliens that Russell Davies ever created. Um, you know, the, the, the farting and fat jokes are a little, more than a little juvenile. Um, I actually don't mind the, the design of them once they're sort of revealed. I think they're kind of goofy, but also I, I kind of like the way their eyes, that they flick sideways to close and everything. There's something kind of insect-like about that. And, um, sure. And the actors had talked about mimicking the sort of childishness of the design. Like, they look kind of like big, sinister babies and wanting to kind of play yeah. it that way. So, yeah. I, you know, that's a little interesting, but I agree. They're, they're, 
they're not the scariest. They're they're a little they're a little dumb. Um, but uh, maybe since we're sort of running out of time, we can talk a little bit more about them in the next episode, since this is a two-parter, um, and uh, we're going to get a little bit more of screen time with the aliens in their true form and expressing mm. their motivations and everything. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And, and, uh, well, I guess we can do that. So, um, cool. Well, thank you for listening everyone. And we'll be back next week. All right. See ya. Mm-hmm.